Happy Gay Wrath Month, monsters! This month we are extending our Patreon drive and offering special bonuses to all new and upgrading donors. Stay tuned at the end of this episode for more details. Now, on to the show. They called us monsters, so monsters we became. We are Monsters Out of the Closet. I'm Nicole. And I'm Shreya. Rituals can bring a sense of control in an otherwise unpredictable world. But beware, in attempting to tame the chaos, you may invite something in. Rules may bring comfort in dangerous times, but they can also cast suspicion on those who stray from the norm, even in minor ways. Our first piece, Proof of Evil, written and read by Edward Ahern, shows a monastery casting judgment when one of their own is suspected of a controversial sin. The flapping of their sandals gave rhythm to their words. Is he ready, Brother William? Stripped, doused off, and inspected, Brother Thomas. We shaved his body and found lice, of course, but no ticks. That's worrisome. Indeed. The two men came to a right-hand turn in the monastery corridor. Facing them was a recessed shrine to St. Peter of Verona, the patron saint of inquisitors. Both examiners genuflected and crossed themselves. St. Peter, guide and protect us, they chanted. Further down the stone-walled corridor, they reached a heavy oaken door, pushed it open, and stepped outside. William glanced at Thomas. Could you help me remove the sheep and dogs from the stockade? Thomas grimaced. Of course. Is it weak of me to admit that I always cringe at being bitten? William's smile was wry. Then we are both weak. The idea of vermin infesting my homely body is repugnant. May as well do it now. The two men bent down, grabbed the bottom hems of their robes, and lifted the wool up to their chests, then tucked gray folds into the cords at their waists, leaving pale, skinny legs exposed to the late April sun. They walked over to a wicker-sided enclosure, Weeds and grass had grown unchecked inside, and a narrow, beaten-down path led from the gate to a heavy wooden chair bolted to stakes pounded into the ground. The dogs began barking as soon as they saw the men, and sheep bleat quickly followed. The dogs bolted as the gate opened, but the half-dozen sheep huddled on the far side of the enclosure. It had rained, and the corral smelled of wet fur and scat. William shuddered. The overcast day was too dim to be able to spot the ticks, but William knew they were there. Where's my faith, he thought, as he and Thomas quick-stepped up the path to the chair. Thick leather straps had been bolted to the front legs and arms of the chair, and they grabbed each strap and yanked, making sure the leather hadn't rotted. 
Satisfied, William waded through the weeds and brambles to the sheep. He waved his arms and yelled, startling the sheep into moving toward the doorway. He moved with them, still yelling. Thomas had positioned himself next to the gate and pushed sheep out into the yard when they balked in the doorway. The two monks went into the sunlight and checked each other's legs and sandals for ticks. There were two, both on Thomas, but neither had yet burrowed their heads under his skin. They regrouped the sheep and led them to another pen. Thomas nodded. We are prepared. May God reveal his sin or innocence. When will you interrogate Albert? After Vespers. There's not much more I need to ask. He and I have spent two years in a monastery cell together, sharing our life stories, our emotions. We are closer than brothers. Has he exhibited signs? Perhaps, Thomas. He was too frequently drinking and making water and would sometimes seem sluggish. But now he falls into comas. Yet I must not prejudge. That is determined by the test. Amen. Brother Albert, being yet unjudged, had not been denied food, but was not pampered. When William arrived, he was eating day-old bread and week-old cheese, and drinking sour wine that the monastery could not sell to villagers. William did not move to embrace the prisoner. Salve, Albert. Salve, William. My mood brightens just to see you even though I know you are here for a last interrogation. Surely you who have heard my confessions and hopes cannot think me an instrument of Satan. We are closer than enemies are supposed to be held. Everything I know of you is good, Albert, but the evil one keeps secrets. Tomorrow's examination will reveal truth, and God willing you will be restored to our service. The cell was lit by animal fat candles, and William looked through the flickering light and drifting soot to see his companion's pained stare. Should a sanctified test rely on blood-drinking vermin? William shrugged. Don't be blasphemous. Would you rather get dunked underwater to see if you drowned? St. Peter of Verona has shown by divine logic and repeated testing that those who the ticks reject and do not bite have infernally tainted blood. The examination is infallible. Those we condemned might disagree. William sat next to Albert on the wooden bench. Brother, you must admit that your comas and incoherencies suggest an infernal presence, and that the ticks avoid satanically infested blood? I admit no such things. Yes, I am sometimes sluggish and have difficulty thinking. Yes, I drink a great deal of water and must visit the privy often. But I believe I am sick. Others in my family, an aunt and my grandfather, had these signs and died before their 35th birthdays. I may also be condemned to early death. But who can say if I am condemned to hell? Albert, I yearn that you are right but do not proselytize me. I am merely God's witness. Tomorrow you will be strapped in the chamber with however many hungry ticks the dogs and sheep have left behind. May God prove you right. We know each other in more depth than a man does his wife, William. My hope, my only hope other than prayer, 
is that you will rely on that knowledge. William reached out and put his hand on Albert's shoulder. I am praying for you, brother. My hope can only be in that prayer. He got up and left without further words. Tests were always conducted immediately after matins. William and Thomas went from the chapel to a storage shed and took hempen cord with which to bind Albert. William's eyes were puffy. He had not slept. The test of a stranger tore at his conscience. The test of an intimate friend shredded it. In the still small hours after midnight, he had gone out into the stockade and stood next to the chair, waiting, visualizing that which must be done. Early the next morning, after matins, the two monks entered Albert's cell. William spoke. Albert, you must remove your clothing. Albert stood, wordlessly shed his robe and smock, and held his hands out for binding. Pax vobiscum, the two months chanted. A cum spiritu tuo, Albert replied. Naked, his hands bound, Albert walked with William and Thomas toward the stockade. Monks lined both sides of the path, but made no gestures and gave no words of comfort, for Albert was in an unproven state. Once inside the pen, Albert walked immediately up to the chair, turned, and sat down. His ankles were bound to the legs of the chair. William and Thomas untied Albert's hands and rebound them to the chair arms, then tethered his neck to the chair back. Thomas opened a psalter based on the Malleus Maleficarum and began reciting. William put his hand on Albert's and in a quiet voice said, I am obligated to tell you that confession will save you from eternal damnation. You may confess even before the examination. Albert grimaced. You and I, so much more than cellmates, yet here you are officiating at what could lead to my death. Do what you must, brother. Once Thomas finished reciting, he and William laid weeds on the ground next to the chair to facilitate the tick's travel. Morning light filtered through the walls of twigs, leaving Albert in mottled patches of shade and sun. His expression was sad rather than frightened. The two monks tied the door shut, not looking at each other. That's that, Thomas said. Now we attend the sunset. William went into the chapel to pray, but was too agitated and itchy for any reflection, and occupied himself cleaning out barn stalls. When the sun had lowered to treetop level, he met again with Thomas. If you like, Thomas, I'll take his left side and you take his right as we search for ticks. Would be faster, as you will. They untied and opened the gate and went in. Albert was awake but said nothing. He had wet himself, and urine still dripped down off the chair seat. They lit torches to better examine him and put their faces within two inches of his skin. The day had been hot, and Albert reeked of gummy sweat and urine. Thomas found the first tick, but it had not bitten Albert, which suggested guilt. After several minutes, William shouted, Praise God, there's one, no two of the vermin, both in his armpit, wait. He reached into Albert's armpit with both hands, pushed, then tugged. Albert squealed as he did so. William held out his hand. 
Here, look, Thomas. Two headless ticks, both engorged. Proof enough, I'd say. Thomas nodded. Definitely ticks. Definitely full of blood. But you should have left them in situ. What matter? Come, here, look. The blood's trickling down his side. Here, William lifted Albert's arm away from his body. See the bite marks? Thomas squinted in the dim light. Yes, I do. You appear to be exonerated, Brother Albert, but we must continue our inspection. As dusk settled in, they completed their tally. Eight ticks, two of which had bitten Albert. As William began to unbind Albert, Thomas left to report to the abbot. Albert stood, naked and damp, and stared at William. I cannot stay here. Even with your exoneration, the other brothers will never be completely trustful. Once the abbot absolves me, I will leave. But you have saved me with your knife cuts and bugs. And at what cost? Please, scratch. The bites on your thigh must be maddening. I believe in you, Albert, and can't believe you are a slave of Lucifer. I did what needed doing to save you. I will confess this when I find another priest who does not know me. Wait, how did you know where my bites were? In the torch-lit dusk, Albert's eyes seemed self-illuminated. My little William, there is latent evil in every good deed. Perhaps we will help you discover this. Our next piece deals in the rituals of faith, sacrifice, and pain, all for just a glimpse of salvation. Believe and Be Justified was written by Felix Flynn and voiced by Casey Lucas. Please be advised that the story contains graphic descriptions of gore. I am one of the faithful. No ropes keep me bound. No chains or shackles tether me. My convictions are what hold me in place. Beneath me is the altar that I have been left upon, the carved stone cold against my fevered skin. The congregation led me here, under the same promise given to countless others that had been chosen before. Paradise. They would give anything to be in my place. Even in the dim candlelight that lit the expansive chamber, I could see the envy in their eyes when the shepherd, our leader, helped me onto the altar where I now stood. After I had been chosen, they washed me. The other worshippers joined me in the oversized bath that resided in the inner sanctum of our chapel, and they poured warm water over my skin, rubbed my limbs, my chest, my back, with rosemary and thyme. Oils were massaged into my flesh, leaving it gleaming in the flickering glow of the torches around us. I recall closing my eyes and breathing deeply, dragging the fragrances of the herbs and sweet oils into my lungs. I could feel him in each breath I took, in each touch on my skin, in the water, the very air. The temple was filled with his presence. 
feeling him in the air was like static on my skin, or a warm embrace. He was energy and peace, damnation and salvation, all in one. He was there for me, watching me become worthy. I had to wait as my brothers and sisters stepped out of the water to circle me. They joined hands, and their voices rose into a chant of prayer. It moved me, shook me to my core. Their love, his love, was enough to bring me to tears and leave me dizzy. Though perhaps that was simply the effect of the now too hot water in which I stood. I knew it wasn't. It was him, his glory, gripping me, leaving my mind foggy as I started to sweat. Once prepared, I was taken out through the back door and into the woods behind the chapel. I was so keenly aware of my surroundings. The wind ghosted through the branches overhead, making the leaves whisper to me. An owl called out somewhere to my right. Moonlight reached down in bright blue beams, caressing my still bare skin. Leaves and twigs covered the path we took, crunching and snapping beneath my heels. They should have hurt. I should have winced at each pebble I stepped on. But they didn't cause me pain. I was too giddy at the idea of what was to come. We stopped at a deep hole, the edge of which was surrounded by old stone. It was all that was left of the ruins our order used to occupy. The circular stone steps that led us down into the pit seemed to go on forever, and each one was taken on shaking legs. I felt ill from the hot bath and my head swam, but I pushed on despite nearly falling twice. I had to stop now and again to brace my hand against the wall to keep from tipping over as my head swam. The others halted when I did, watching and waiting silently. If I fell, they wouldn't stop me. I'd go tumbling forward until I hit the landing at the bottom, where I would be left broken to rot. I'd be deemed unworthy of his grace. The thought alone urged me forward. Our Lord held me upright. He kept me going. They chanted again after I was placed on the altar, their voices rising and reverberating around me as they sang, filling the vast vacant space with the sound. This would be the last time I saw them in this world. Of course, we would all be together again, once they too joined him, but for now, this was goodbye. We were a family. A family that loved each other so deeply we knew how necessary it was to leave this place, this diseased world. They understood me as I understood them. Not like the family I had left behind. My mother, father, and sisters hadn't been convinced when I told them that they needed to come with me. They wept, told me to stay, told me that they cared. They didn't. They were just as lost as the rest. A lost world, made of concrete and steel, dying away. Civilization, as we knew it, was spiraling down a destructive path, trapping us on a planet with dwindling resources, where plants and animals were dying, where we spent our lives in front of screens. We had forgotten the old ways, the shepherd had said when he'd found me. We were all damned. But the willing could be saved. He wanted me to be one of his flock, to earn my place and be delivered from this world to somewhere better. Now it was my time. 
I had finally made it. The hymn the congregation sang wasn't sad, though it sounded melancholy. It was uplifting, reminding me of who we were, the truest believers, and of everything I stood to gain through this. It was the best parting gift I could have asked for, to be so warm, so filled with their admiration. They turned away after their harmonized voices finally quieted and started for the stairs. The resounding echoes of their voices were all that they left behind. Their absence gave me a chance to look around this sacred place. The walls were etched with aided ancient carvings that were no doubt as old as he was. Most of the writings were unreadable, engraved in some script long lost to time. The rest were images, something like hieroglyphs but with a druidic aesthetic. I had to stand on my toes to get a better look at them, but even then they reached too high for me to see in their entirety. The drawings depicted the rituals that my peers and I followed, depicted the cleansing, the offering, and then paradise. In front of me loomed an impossibly large open archway that looked as if it had been unevenly dug into the stone. Perhaps it was a cave, and the ritual site had been built around it, except the opening didn't look natural. There were scrapes and scratches etched around the gaping maw, as if something had dug its way through, scraped and clawed its way out. The cavern was where he dwelt. I knew. Something stirred in the inky black of that archway, and for a moment I was sure the movement was the dark itself, come alive and threatening to break past the doorway, to flood out into the floor and eat up the space between us. It didn't. My heart picked up its pace, not from fear but from excitement, as twin iridescent orbs appeared. Each were as big as my head, and from where they seemed to hover, fifteen or so feet up, I could see them glint in the waning candlelight. Finally, finally, I would become one with my brothers and sisters, my family and friends, one with him. He came forward into the light, one giant taloned paw at a time, nails scraped against hard stone. The sound of a heavy body dragging its way closer reached my ears. He was too large for the candles to illuminate completely, but what the glow could reach shined, glossy and wet, with a rainbowed sheen that reminded me of an oil slick. I could make out yellowed tusks, chipped but sharp, on either side of its mouth that was suddenly stretching wide to let out an ear-piercing shriek. He had endless rows of pointed teeth, a purple-blue tongue that swiped out across one of his tusks as the keening cry ended, leaving the bone slippery with thick saliva. He was beautiful, glorious, unlike anything I could have imagined. The scripture didn't do him justice. There were, in the Order's holy books, vague pictures of what our Lord looked like, drawn ages ago in the same style that marked the walls around me. I had mused with my brothers and sisters about what he would be like. Would he speak to us? Would he be silent as he took us to the next life? Would he be kind and loving when confronted with our devotion? The conversations always left us giddy, dreaming of when we would be chosen next.
Even my wildest dreams couldn't have prepared me for this. He was huge, taking up the space of the already enormous chamber, and so real. He was real. All of this was real. Not that I had ever doubted him. A lesser believer might have. They may have been shocked at what they were seeing, but I wasn't. Still, I was finding it hard to breathe. I was shaking, and it was difficult to stand any longer. I dropped to my knees before him. I imagined what would come next. The holy book depicted wonderful light, celebration, going home to him, back to where we truly belong. It would be mine now. A low, rumbling growl reverberated from his throat. I did not tremble, even as the altar room around me did. I was not afraid. I had been waiting for this. I wouldn't run from him, from this, not now, not when I would finally be granted salvation. He had chosen me, me, and this was his will. The candles burned lower, nearly snuffed out, and in the growing darkness, he moved closer to bend over me. I could vaguely make out spines rising up out of his rigid back and casting hill-like little shadows along the wall. His head, coming nearer, looked feline in shape, although there wasn't an inch of fur on his smooth skin. Slit nostrils flared as he breathed in my scent. My smell was mixed with, or perhaps masked by, the aroma of the oils and herbs from the bath. He seemed pleased, which only helped calm me. Our lord would come in the form of a great beast, tame and sweet, to lead us to our next life. That was what the shepherd had said whenever another of the flock was chosen. The holy book told us this. It was why I did not hesitate to reach up and touch his face. My hand ran along his massive jaw, along his flat, wet skin. It was sticky, coated in a mucus that clung to my palm and no doubt accounted for the sheen I had seen earlier. I should have been afraid, but I wouldn't allow myself to be. This was right. Everything about this was just as it had been foretold. Still, my hot skin was turning cold, and my mouth had gone dry. I swallowed hard. His body went stone still, eyes staring at me, unseeing, and it struck me that he was blind. Of course, what need were eyes when finding the hereafter? I was about to close my own in this quiet, perfect moment, only he lifted his head some, drawing my attention. My lord, I whispered breathless in my awe of him. My lord, show me paradise. My savior opened his maw, and I was confronted with those teeth, those razor-sharp points perfectly lining dark black gums. The next few moments were a blur. With a snarl, he abruptly bit down on my still outstretched arm and jerked me off the altar hard enough to pop my shoulder bone clear out of its socket. 
I could not register what had happened, even as I was dangling above feet of open air and the floor below. Then it hit me. White hot pain slammed into me and I screamed. Blood was pouring from his lips, down past my elbow to drip onto my throat. It was warm and wet, mixing with the creatures. Not creatures. His drool. I felt faint. Why was this happening? Was I not worthy? Had he forsaken me? Was I his most devout, being denied paradise? No. No. I refused to believe it. This was another test. A test of my faith. It only made sense that pain would be suffered, endured, that the pathway to paradise would be found through blood spilled. There had been nothing about this in the holy book. But I knew this was a test. I clamped my mouth shut, refusing to scream again and give him any reason to deny me. I could prove my commitment. I was taken through the archway he had emerged from, and was blanketed in the cool dark. Adrenaline pumped through my veins, made me feel sick, and I fought down bile as my arm throbbed from my crushed wrist still caught in his teeth. Agonizing heat pulsed through me, but I had faith. All these years of worship and prayer, of study, of devotion, it hadn't all been for nothing. And I endured, and I stayed quiet, muffling whimpers at each jarring step he took. Even when he flung me hard against the ground, I did no more than stifle a whimper as the wind was knocked out of me, and I was sure one of my ribs broke. Pain would be payment, I reasoned. This human coil would be shed soon enough. Then I would be wrapped in his brilliance and warmth. This was his plan. The ground beneath me was hard and uneven. As his hot breath washed over me again, my fingers sought for purchase so I could sit up. I wanted to proclaim my devotion to him, to tell him of my faith, but the words died in my throat. It wasn't stone under my palms, but chipped and cracked bone that covered the floor. Though I couldn't see, I knew it with a cold certainty as my fingers dipped into a skull's eye sockets, skittered away then slid over a clean rib cage. My breath caught in my throat and was forced out in a cry as his mouth clamped down onto one of my legs. Surely he would forgive me my weakness. I was only human. His teeth dug into the tender flesh of my thigh, grinding saw-like to rip through the meat and bone. It brought a wet crunching sound to my ears as a fresh wave of pain hit me. He was eating me eating me as he'd eaten so many others. It was unbearable, but I had to bear it. Tears streaked down my cheeks at the realization. He was perfect, my magnificent lord, and I was so lucky he had picked me. I would not give in to doubts, not now, not ever. My other leg was devoured in pulpy, juicy bites his horribly powerful jaws reached my hips, and my grip on the world around me was starting to slip as the agony of it, of his consuming me, became too much. I tasted blood on my tongue, 
coughed it onto my lips as he began tearing into my stomach. And I smiled. Through the pain, the subtle jerks of my body as he tugged and pulled at my meat as I was dragged deeper into that awful mouth of his, I saw the truth. He would tear me up and swallow me down, but my faith told me this wouldn't be the end. I would have my paradise, and he was setting me free, inch by inch. I was happy for it. Overjoyed. Rituals symbolize codification and ease, but interpreted as rote, these practices can swallow you whole. What tracks have you worn into your life, dear listener, and how might you break free? Thanks again to Edward Ahern and Felix Flynn for their contributions to this episode, and to Casey Lucas for her performance. A special thank you also goes out to guest audio editor Ari Mathay for this episode's production. Featured music and sound was by Eric Matias, Kevin McLeod, David Hillowitz, Blue Dot Sessions, Digifish Music, and Sunny Terry. To learn more about our pieces, artists, and readers, please visit our website, monstersoutofthecloset.com. Our next episode, Grave, will be released in July. In the meantime, stay up to date with podcast news, submission calls, and our shameless ogling of monsters at monstersoutofthecloset.tumblr.com and at pod underscore monsters on Twitter. Our supporting producers are Tara Rangan, Lindsay Holt, Sarah Lopez, and Lourdes Kaland. We also want to thank our other patrons who make this show possible and you, dear listeners, who keep us out of the grave. But don't just thank our patrons, consider becoming one. This Gay Wrath Month, all new or upgrading patrons will receive exclusive rewards, including our awesome stickers and a special one-off Phantom of the Cinema review of The Perfection. Remember, for as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue to run this unique platform for LGBTQ plus writers in this evolving genre. Until next time, Monsters out.